As we approach a deadline, it's normal to feel an increased sense of pressure. How much have I got to do? Is there going to be enough time? All of those kinds of questions come to mind. Used in the right way, this can help spur our students on, but too much of that pressure can be debilitating. This year's GCSE and A-level students are also suffering with a double whammy. They're facing into these future-looking questions while also worried about catching up given the previous disruptions to schooling. That's an awful situation to be in, but does it mean it has to be a hopeless one? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of those issues that come up. Now, these could be broad themes such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be absolutely sure that we'll be covering the topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. In this episode, we're thinking about this year's exams. Given the uncertainty, we'll be considering alternatives, as well as some practical guidance for parents when it comes to supporting their teens. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dylan William. Dylan is the Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at the University College London. In a varied career, he's taught in inner-city schools, he's directed large-scale testing programmes, served a number of roles in university administration, including the Dean of a School of Education, and pursued a research programme focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment in supporting learning. Dylan, thank you very much for joining me. Over the past week, our students have been preoccupied with the amount of work that they have to do, by which I mean catch up on. They're aware that they've missed a lot, and most are really worried about how they'll get back on top of what's been missed, while keeping on top of all this new learning. The level of worry does vary from student to student, as you might expect. Anastasia is finding school particularly hard at the moment. She struggled with independent study over the holidays and before that in lockdown, and she prefers group and teacher-led learning. As a result, she's worried of having fallen behind and is really piling the pressure on herself to catch up. There's just so much that we have to do, and it's just catching up on things is hard. We still expected that all the stuff that we learned during lockdown. It's just, I'm not very good at teaching my own self I have to have someone in front of me telling exactly what to do how to do it which then coming back to school and being told that I should know all this stuff is hard to remember it all. Dylan are students right to feel like they've got this mountain to climb after all it's not uncommon to feel like that in normal years. I think students are right to feel that they have a considerable challenge but it's also important to remember that students vary massively in their appetite for stress and so the fact is that stress is, is helpful up to a certain point and destructive beyond that. And where that balancing point is will differ from student to student. Some students are very happy leaving things to the last minute. Some students are very stressed by that and they want to prepare. So I think that it's, it's very risky to come up with any prescriptions that will work for all students. But there are some things, I think, that the research is reasonably clear about. And that is the things that teachers told us 100 years ago, which is little and often 
is far better than trying to do things in a big spurt towards the end of the examination because of the way our memories work. So I think you know, preparing steadily you know, months in advance of the exams makes your performance far better than trying to cram it in all the last minute. But these students have had um, exceptional uh, break, I guess, from um, from school. If we think about here in the UK, that the uh, schools broke up in about March time, uh, well, mm. during lockdown, and then into uh, into a very long summer, it felt like for many of them. And Anastasia in particular wasn't able to, to really do an awful lot, she didn't feel, during that time. Can you talk to us about uh, loss of learning and whether or not that's something that is likely to have an impact on these students? There's no doubt that students do lose learning traditionally over a summer break. It's not as bad in England as it is in the United States because the summer holidays in England are much shorter than they tend to be in the United States. So there's no doubt that there is learning loss, but it's been very hard to find out exactly how much of it there is. So some studies have found, for example, that students go further back in maths than they do in reading, for example. That's probably because some students do read over the summer holidays. It's also suggested by some people that students from more affluent backgrounds do more reading over the summer, and therefore their learning loss, at least in reading, is less than it is for students from less advantaged homes. But it's also surprising what the how variable the estimates are. So some studies reckon that learning loss is about 10% of what was learned the previous year, and others put it at 40%. So we really know surprisingly little about learning loss. And the other thing to be aware of is that if you test students on the first day back, then they won't do very well. But that's not measuring learning. It's measuring how easy it is to retrieve things. And what's surprising about memory is if you've ever learned it in the past, even if you can't retrieve it now, a quick refresh will actually bring it right back up to as good as it was when you last studied it in depth. So we need to be quite cautious about concluding too much from any surveys that people do when students return, because that's measuring what psychologists call retrieval, not measuring real learning. But isn't, isn't it that retrieval that's at play when we come to um, final assessments at the end of a, a year? Of course it is. But... In terms of learning, what the research shows is that we want to increase the ability to recall things in an examination. And the thing that drives that in a permanent way is what's called storage strength, the idea of how well it was learned, how well what you've learned is connected to everything else you've learned. And so when you are tested, when you haven't done anything for two or three weeks, then you might not do very well. But if you're tested the day after, then how well you will do depends both on how quickly you refreshed it, but also how permanent that learning was two months ago. Little and often keeps on refreshing that memory, and that's then less stressful because you feel better prepared. The good news is you can actually get back up to where you were quite quickly because it's actually there in your, in your memory somewhere, but it's just hard to retrieve right now because it's unfamiliar. It's, 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 it's not at the tip of your... Uh, of your um, tibia tongue sort of thing. And so what are the ways in which you can strengthen? You talked about little and often. And um, what are the ways in which you can strengthen those um, storage strengths, as you put them? Well, the, the surprising thing is that if I did uh, two hours of study on a Thursday night for a Friday test, that would probably do less good than doing half an hour on Monday night, half an hour on Tuesday night, half an hour on Wednesday night, half an hour on Thursday night. So, so breaking things up into shorter sessions 
is beneficial. And the longer the interval between those study sessions, the bigger the benefit of restudying. So if you can do things with, say, two weeks intervals between studying the same content, it will feel frustrating because you'll think, I used to know this, but I don't know it anymore. But restudying it, or even better, retrieving it by kind of refreshing your memory by doing a practice test, for example, will actually have a bigger impact on your long-term learning. And so just having a, a schedule whereby you lay out, uh, if you're doing, say, 10 GCSEs, then having one night each fortnight for each subject and planning that out would mean that you're coming back to things when they are beginning to fade and you're keeping it fresh and the time spent is more productive than trying to do things in much bigger blocks, for example. I think it's really interesting that, that then... The, the process of learning and coming up to the exams and sort of embedding this this retrieval um, is then seems to be much more about how we can uh, how we can create those connections in our brain um, how we can develop this retrieval as you say more than it is about the content itself is that right well then I think there are some things that are fairly generic to memory so this idea that psychologists use to distinguish between storage strength, how well something was learned, and retrieval strength, how easy it is to retrieve right now, is very powerful. And you need retrieval strength to pass exams, but you need storage strength for long-term learning. The important point is, students who do best in exams are at the point where both restorage strength, how well it's been learned, and retrieval strength are high, and that means you kind of work over a considerable period of time to bring both of those to the boil, if you like, as you come into the examination. I think that's the really important point, mm. is that then you'll get learning that's, that's there for the examination, but also is there afterwards. If you cram, even if your cramming is successful, the quicker you learn it, the quicker you forget it. And that's the, that's the other message. We, we can debate about whether exams are a good idea or not, but... Right now, we have an examination system that does require students to accumulate things and to kind of put it all together for a couple of weeks in the summer. And what we now know is there are ways to prepare for that and practice testing and spacing out your, your revision over a, a considerable period of time uh, are the two clearest things that the research suggests on a generic basis. Then there will be subject-specific strategies for particular subjects. How might those strategies vary? Um, is it as simple as maths on one hand, English for another? Is it, uh, or will, does it vary by student? It also depends on the particular syllabus you're following. So some examination syllabuses are more predictable. The exams they set for those syllabuses are more predictable. So teachers have a role to play here in helping students understand what it is that is going to be coming up in the exam. And so it's very difficult to be prescriptive, but. You know, an exam where question three is always about quadratic roots uh, every year at the A-level is going to be easy to prepare for. Just make sure you're good at extracting quadratic roots. Uh, if, you know, in a history exam, it's probably more difficult because there are ways that a, an examiner can set a question that looks like a familiar question but actually has a kind of spin on it. And there, what's important is that you've read broadly around the, the topic and... It, you may not know exactly how to answer that question. It's much more a test of your thinking. 
and we can do that in mathematics as well. So I think it's much more to do with the take that an exam board has on the subject than it necessarily has to do with the subject itself. Mm, sure. So you do hear that, don't you? It's the exam, um, the exam technique. If you've got a six-point question, typically you'll need to break it down into um, these number of things. And as you say, that an examiner is looking for um, these kinds of areas. Right. And of course, the difficulty is that there is some research, particularly when there's choice involved, that it doesn't actually help the weaker candidates because the stronger candidates choose more wisely than the weaker candidates. And so uh, choice is often not very helpful because weaker candidates choose questions that they're not very good at. And so I'm, I'm not a big fan of choice in examinations. I quite like the idea that everybody has to do every single question and then it, it, students don't waste time choosing questions when they mm. could be actually getting on and doing the questions. Which was always looking like it was going to be a difficulty this year where some of the subjects have had their um, syllabuses or the, the specifications altered um, in light of how uh, affected teaching time has been. So English language, for example, uh, English literature, for example, will have fewer textbooks. And there's a similar idea within uh, history and ancient history as well. And of course, that goes to the very heart of what we are trying to examine. So the whole idea of a set book actually encourages cramming for the test because you know you're going to be tested on this book. You could actually argue that if you really want to test the ability to criticize literature, you should actually choose a text that hardly any students would, can be expected to have seen. In the same way in mathematics, you can either have things that are very familiar, which just tests technique, or you can actually set really novel problems that students are highly unlikely to be able to rehearse in advance. They're testing completely different things, and they make a huge difference to, first of all, how well students do, but also, what's the best way to prepare them? Hmm. So, as you said, and you said before, we are in a situation where the assessment is at the end of um, hmm. the a period of time. But I'm quite interested to explore what alternatives there might be, and that's not uh, entirely theoretical, uh, because also we are in this changing landscape, and um, whether or not there's a second spike there's certainly an impact on uh, current education and and schooling as some schools close for um, COVID cases and others don't. So I'm really interested to find out what um, what alternatives there might be. Uh, so the government presumably are looking at this right now. If you were in their mm -hmm. position, if they were on the phone to you, what kind of thing would you be suggesting as an alternative? If you look at assessment in other countries, you see that England is towards one end of the extreme from external examinations set by an external agency marked by strangers towards the other extreme, which is assessment done entirely by students, teachers. And both of those extremes are pretty, un uh, uh, pretty unfortunate. So the English system, which has no place for teacher judgment, is, is odd. The difficulty is when you begin to add teacher judgment. So in America, for example, there's these what used to be called the Scholastic Aptitude Test, and it's now just the SAT, which is basically an aptitude test. It's meant to be curriculum neutral. But that's falling out of favor, and universities are increasingly relying on the grades given to students by their teachers. And that sounds quite progressive, but in fact, of course, what happens is that the grades are based on a series of assessments every two to four weeks, and it doesn't actually require students to accumulate any knowledge. So in a pure grade-based system, students can learn stuff and then forget it and then learn the next stuff. 
And so there's no requirement to accumulate knowledge. So I think that the best systems need to be synoptic. In other words, there is a requirement for student knowledge to accumulate. And therefore, you do need some kind of assessment at the end. But the assessment system also needs to be distributed. So you're not relying on collecting all the information that you need right at the very end of the course. It needs to be manageable so that the burden on students and teachers is not too great. And it needs to be trusted by key stakeholders. I think those four ideas, synoptic, distributed, manageable, and trusted, are key in thinking about any new system. But if we could take a step back and say, let's not mess about with GCSE and A-level. Let's also identify other ways of finding talent. And so you have an interesting model in Sweden, whereby if you apply to university, you are considered on either the score you get on an aptitude test or on your teacher's grades, whichever gives you the best chances of getting in. So my objection to, say, A-levels as a way of recruiting students into universities is, are A-levels the only way of identifying students who are talented enough to go to university? So what I'm looking for is a much more diverse portfolio of ways that students could be considered for university study. And the universities will say, this is a lot of work. And I'm saying, yeah, but it's your job. So in, in the United States, for example, if you get a really high score on the SAT, the first thing you may discover about this, before you get the results, is a university will call you and say, have you thought about coming to us? So universities see their job as identifying talent, even if it doesn't knock on the door. Some have done a much better job than others, but they're still waiting for students to actually approach them rather than saying, how can we be more uh, proactive in finding students who could do really well, given the right amount of support? Because mm. you do see an element of that. And certainly having been through this with Jake, um, my eldest, and gone to university, his, his predicted grades are what will get him a seat at the table, if you like. But then there's, in some cases, in some universities, still an interview process, or there's still um, further tests that they'll, they'll need to do. So it would seem that that is happening to an extent, but with, um, and certainly in the UK, as far as I'm aware, you still need those predicted grades in order to progress to the next level. You do. But the role of predicted grades has actually changed in the last 20 years. So originally, they were just a way of helping the people making decisions to think about which students to offer particular grades to. Um, but now what's happening is, increasingly, they're actually being used as a post-qualifications admission system. So when I was chairing the admissions committee at, at King's, King's College London, uh, we, we discovered students were being given offers like three Bs, and they got three Cs. And so we were rejecting them because they didn't make the offer that they'd been set. We then had vacancies and we discovered we were going back into clearing and actually recruiting students who weren't even as good as that through clearing. So we actually decided that if you'd made an offer to a student, well, maybe they just had a really bad set of exam days and the insight that you had into that person when you offered them three Bs should be the thing you rely on. So take them anyway. So I think some universities are now relying on those predicted grades as being, you know, this is, we, 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 think, we think we like you and we think this is what you should get and we want you to work hard towards it. But if you don't get that particular target, that's okay. And it's also important to remember that A-level grades are not particularly reliable. The chances of getting the grade that you should get in the long run average 
is only about 60 to 70 percent. So most people who study this say that A-level grades are already accurate, plus or minus one grade. So if you say to a student, you should get three Bs, and they get two Bs and a C, they could actually have got three Bs on a different day. So we should be careful not to overinterpret the data. And the best way to do that is to collect different kinds of information. Interviews are good. They're not particularly reliable, uh, but they are better than nothing at all, uh, or just relying on exam results. So I, I accept that this is all very expensive. One of the things we could possibly do is to move towards a more American system, which is not to have people in the subject departments doing the selection. So moving towards a, a much more liberal arts-based idea of not requiring students to decide what they're gonna specialize in until they've had some time at the university. But right now, you effectively choose your university studies either at the age of 16 or 18. And I think there's ample evidence that students really aren't old enough or mature enough, haven't seen enough to make smart choices about what they want to do for the three or four years at university. So I think that I would like to see a broadening of the curriculum both at A-level and at university in order to give students more time, in particular because the old specialized model that we that we got here in, in England was fine when you could actually reach the frontiers of knowledge quite quickly, but now it's so far away that it's going to be decades before you get there. And therefore, you may be better off having a broad and balanced education rather than specializing too early, because it may be those links across fields that allow you to make really profound breakthroughs rather than pursuing one furrow in great depth. It sounds to me that, that some of the things you were talking about there um, informally um, when you were at King's thinking about whether or not you should have had those grades are much more likely to come into play over these next few years with um, with students that have been affected by COVID because even though they've been given grades that were based on centre-assessed um, results or um, the algorithm, whichever whichever was better, actually there's still going to be a question mark over whether or not that result is actually a result. And so they'll presumably need to find new ways in which they can assess whether or not a, a, a student is suitable for that next step. Absolutely. If you're going to rely on A-level grades as a potential measure, a measure of students' ability to benefit from university education, you're making a large number of assumptions that are not always met in practice. You're assuming that the students have been well taught. You're assuming that the students uh, knew what they were doing, that they, that they didn't have any kind of major disruption through family issues over the course of their studies. And what I'm saying is, Maybe if we stop assuming those things, we'll find other solutions to find ways students can benefit from university education. Because, you know, hiccups happen in, a, in the course of educational progress, and yet relying on A-level grades assumes that nothing has gone wrong. You know, teacher didn't teach the wrong syllabus, teacher was a highly effective teacher, teacher was knowledgeable, the teacher wasn't sick. All those things make those grades less and less useful as indicators of student potential. And I just think we, we, we need to recognize that the, the school closures that we've had over the past six to nine months just make us recognize something we should have been recognizing 
for a long time. And and as you say, that's helping the students to find um, the right next step, but presumably also right for the universities because they're attracting a more, uh, or have the potential to attract a more rounded um, talent. And say universities, and I think also colleges and, and further education establishments will, will be in the same vein, won't they? That if they can look beyond the number or the letter, that actually you're in a much better position to find someone who's going to flourish um, or at least won't give in to um, various pressures and, and have the negative impacts that we've seen on um, well-being. I think that's right. I think the thing we have to be careful about, which is why I talk about synoptic and distributed systems, is that if we get rid of formal assessments entirely, then there's a real danger that admissions tutors will recruit people who are like them. Hmm. We, we actually reproduce the orthodoxy. The, the good thing about the examination systems that are in most countries is they're relatively objective, and people forget that the much-reviled SAT in the United States was introduced at Harvard to stop the, the seats in Harvard being filled by the sons of alumni. They wanted to actually find ways of finding talent. So I just think we need to find more ways of identifying talent. It could be an aptitude test rather than a, a content-based examination. So um, um, a mixed economy, I think, is something that we'd heard in a previous podcast of um, assessments, both final and um, on and ongoing. Right. And the thing you have to watch for when you bring in teacher assessment is, first of all, um, you know, there is evidence that teachers are, can be biased. Um, a recent study showed that shown a picture of a student that had been digitally altered to make the student appear 20 pounds heavier change the grades the teachers awarded so wow. teachers teachers give lower grades to overweight students so there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of things we have to look at but the thing that worries me far more and i think that the government was right to be concerned about this with its introduction of controlled conditions assessments when you actually allow students to take assessed work home you don't know who's doing their work and the big mistake we made in gcse in the 19 late 1980s was that coursework became an addition to the coursework. So coursework should have been the work of the course, but it became these special set-piece assignments which were done in uncontrolled ways, and therefore you had no idea who was doing the work. And so all of these things bring in problems. What we need to do is to actually think, how can we get more diverse evidence? So yes, a mixed economy. Uh, this is the, one of the key rules in assessment is the more different ways you have of finding evidence, the more likely your assessments are to support valid conclusions. Hmm. But then also thinking about what are the particular problems with this method, what are the particular problems with this method, and having more judgmental ways of aggregating them. So all these things need to be looked at carefully. But yes, a mixed economy, a more diverse set of ways of providing evidence of potential, I think is definitely the way that I would recommend government should proceed and ask me for its advice. And certainly I think from what we've seen that this situation has, has really sh uh, shone a light on the inequality that exists amongst students in different schools. So as you mentioned early on that um, there's evidence that uh, that students from uh, more well-off or more well-off families are reading more and therefore the learning loss in English is less. And I think we're seeing that now aren't we that that with school lockdown, those children who are at better funded independent schools or others have better access to um, 
online resources. And so actually there's quite a gulf between those who have and those who um, have not uh, with this current situation. There is, but figuring out the causes is much more complex than people assume. So the best data that I've seen from England in terms of achievement at 11 and achievement at 16 in GCSE suggests that only 10% or so of the variation in the grades that students get at GCSE is caused by the school the student attends. Most of it is due to factors to do with the student. And the other thing that's really surprising, and this comes from my former colleague, Robert Ploming at, at King's College London, the other thing that we're discovering is there's a substantial genetic influence. I know nobody wants to talk about this, but the fact is that some students find learning easier than others. Estimates are that the fastest learner in a class, a mixed ability class, is probably learning stuff four times quicker than the slowest. And so there's this kind of endowment that some students, I mean, they haven't deserved that. You know, those students who are given those brains that soak up school stuff have done nothing to deserve those brains. In the same way that tall people are more likely to be basketball players, but they've done nothing to deserve being tall. And the evidence is that the genetic contribution is not zero. So some of the most surprising work of Robert Ploming shows that actually home background, the home influence, the things that parents are doing, doesn't seem to be anything like as strong as people have assumed in the past. And so the shared environment, the, the, the environment that you know, three brothers in the same family share, seems not to be that important in, as an influence on how things turn out. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult to pin down these causes. And I would say, so what? Because the fact that some students find learning easier than others doesn't tell us what kind of society we want. So my advice is, if some students need more support to be successful in school, then we should actually pull out all the stops to provide that support. We want to get every single student up to a level where they can participate meaningfully in society. And I think that means giving far more resources to the students who find learning more difficult. So the fact that, the fact that some students find learning easier than others does not tell you anything about what you should do about that. That is driven by your view of what kind of society you want to build. So many different factors in play. And as you say, so the, the three brothers analogy works really well for me um, because I've got um, I've got two younger brothers and we are all, um, I'm going to go with blessed um, because it's my podcast, <laughs> I'm going to, blessed with yeah. different virtues. Um, mine was more bookish. Um, the middle brother was um, or is very, very sporty, um, excelled at absolutely everything that he did in a, in a sports field, um, completely unlike me. And then um, our youngest brother, um, bless him, was born with the confidence as if he was gifted <laughs> in, in every other field. But as you say, that our, our home life was, um, was exactly the same. But it, but it wasn't. You see, that, the point I'm making is that if you're bookish, even if the difference is tiny, you'll read a bit more. And then you actually enjoy reading more because it becomes easier. And therefore, you read even more. So the extraordinary thing is that tiny little differences in dispositions can be magnified by the way that you actually respond to those things. If you take a class of 11-year-olds, the most avid reader will actually read 4 million words a year. The least avid reader will read 50,000 words a year. Wow. So there's this very complicated dynamic uh, that, that our environment is influenced by our predispositions. We actually create environments for ourselves that match our preferred ways of operating. 
sort of an, an unconscious bias towards our own flourishing. Absolutely. And so, you know, there's this figure that's thrown around about practicing. You know, 10,000 hours of practice makes you good. Well, it may not actually. It's, it's actually a misreading of Anders Ericsson's work anyway. But the important point is, who does 10,000 hours of practice? The ones who find that practice gets you somewhere. If you, if you don't have that bit of talent, you're highly unlikely to keep on practicing if you're not making any progress. So these things interact in extremely complex ways. And the really important thing from the, this research is that we actually tend to choose for ourselves environments that match our preferences. And therefore, they become reinforcing. So I assume your brother then did lots of sports and then did lots of training because he was successful. And because he was getting more and more success, he got better coaching or whatever. And so those things actually multiply. And you might have been almost as talented in that area, but because you didn't get on that um, virtuous circle, those things never happened. Mm. I'm going to tell him that the next time I see him. I think he might openly laugh at me, but it's... Um... <laughs> but he doesn't know. That's the problem. You can't run these experiments over and over again. <laughs> so, I mean, it's interest, I'm interested in how that um, goes along with the growth mindset theory, because you say you can't be, um, you can't be a basketball player, um, particularly um, unless you're a particular height. So there's a, there are some people who are um, predisposed one way or another to, um, to succeed and excel in a particular area. But for those of us who still need to do them, so I'll come back to these exams um, and the GCSEs that will um, hopefully for these students take place, they still need to overcome whatever obstacles they're finding in order to do as well as they can. Right. So in basketball, I was quote um, Tyrone Muggsy Bogues, who played at the top level of American basketball in the professional leagues with a height of five foot three inches tall. So, and he was an exceptional athlete. He had an extraordinary vertical leap. So and what I say to students is, some students find this easier than you do, but there's no limit to what you can do if you try hard enough. And that's where I think growth mindset comes in. So growth mindset's been attacked recently as being a sham or a fake. Growth mindset by itself doesn't actually help you very much. What it does do is make you more open to feedback and criticism. Because if you have a growth mindset, you welcome feedback because it's a chance to direct your improvement. If you have a fixed mindset, then feedback is unwelcome because it might show you you're not as smart as you thought you were. So I think getting students to understand that everything is malleable is really important. And it's also important to remember that every student that I've ever met has a growth mindset for something. I ask 12-year-olds in the city, can you drive a car? And they say no. That's why it has to be the city, because in the country, they probably already can. But I say, can you drive a car? They say, no. Do you think you'll be able to learn to drive a car if you want to when you're 18? And every 12-year-old I've ever met says yes. Every 12-year-old has a growth mindset for car driving. And what we need to do is to get every student to believe that maths and science and modern foreign languages are just the same. You can be as good as you want to be in this if you're willing to put in the time. I think that's the really important disposition we need to develop in our, in our young people, is this idea that smart is not something you are, smart is something you can get. So if I take us back then to um, where we started in the, the beginning, 
that um, that there is um, a mountain to climb, uh, figuratively speaking, of course, and then mm -hmm. there are there's content that needs to be caught up on, and there's still content that needs to be taught. But in actual fact, students should be um, open to the possibility that actually they can do it if they were to put their minds to it and and need to find a way through. Absolutely. And I think that the worst they could do is, is panic or try to do something really speculative. I think steady as she goes, yes, you will have missed out on content, but by focusing on what you need to be doing, by looking forward rather than back, you are where you are. Nothing, that's what I say to students, nothing that you can do right now changes where you are right now. But everything you do feeds into where you can be. My thanks to Dylan for taking the time to talk to me and share his perspective and practical tips with us all. Many of the experts that we've spoken to agree that the system is outmoded and it was interesting to hear Dylan talk about the shortcomings and upsides of various different approaches to assessment. As an employer myself, I can absolutely see the need for a better metric of a candidate than simply letters and numbers. And while many will point to the fact that places are awarded after an interview, applicants typically will have to make it over these grade hurdles in the first place. And as an individual, as a person, I would certainly be happier if I wasn't judged solely on one moment in time especially if I didn't think that reflected the whole of the journey. Who knows, perhaps this pandemic will be the catalyst for a more balanced and varied approach. For now though, we're in this odd position of having a system that's entirely reliant on a final exam, while also having this distinct possibility that those exams might not take place. I've joked before that uncertainty is the only thing we can count on right now, but that's neither particularly funny nor helpful to the young people in their exam years. The good news, I guess, is that preparing for final assessments early is a no-regret strategy. Dylan talked about little and often, and that spacing study and revision out over a longer period of time is significantly better than cramming. If exams do take place, this will have strengthened the storage of that information while practicing retrieval, testing yourself, is a great way to hone those retrieval skills. If they don't take place, this approach should help to show progress and also help evidence any attainment if teacher assessments form part of any future grading approach. It can be difficult to muster the motivation to study at the best of times, but when you're catching up as well as learning new content, it can only be harder than ever for those young people taking exams. If you haven't already, I'd really encourage you to take a listen to episode four in this season, where we explored motivation and the difference between activating and sustaining. Our experts there gave some great practical advice on how to get going and also overcome some of the more common barriers. On that note, I was struck just by how poignant Dylan's last remark was. There's nothing we can do about the situation we're in, but everything we do now will affect how our future is. Our young person may well be feeling despondent when looking at this mountain that they didn't really have any part in creating. But how they tackle it is a conscious choice they can make, giving them the power to be the masters and mistresses of their own destiny. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode interesting and informative. If you did enjoy it, then it would be great if you could leave a five-star rating. It helps us to reach other parents and help them to support their own teams. Of course, sharing the link to this and the other episode on your social media is also very much appreciated. 
there'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.